This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to episode 233 of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Justin Canberra. Justin is a real estate investor based in Washington, and in this episode, Justin will talk about scaling his rental portfolio to over 60 units in under three years and all of the different commercial loans that he uses to fund his investments. So if you want to learn how to quickly grow your rental portfolio, then you need to listen to this episode. And this market is still incredibly hot. So if you're looking for a hard money loan for your fix and flip projects, or if you're looking for a 30-year fixed loan for rental properties with rates as low as 4%, then you can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Let me know that you're a podcast listener, and I'll give you a discount on our processing fee. And now, on to the show. Justin, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself, and let us know who you are, and tell us what you do. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on the show. Happy to be here. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. Uh, name's Justin Canberra. Got into the real estate game here. Jesus, coming up about five years now. And... Uh, you know, kind of started uh, locally, then I branched out to out of state, focusing on cash flow and uh, learned a lot over the last couple of years. And now I'm actually looking at pivoting and doing more local into the Seattle area. That's awesome. So we started real estate investing around the same time frame because I also started in late 2016, uh, bought some small rental properties out of state and then, you know, kind of grew it into more rental properties out of state and flipping projects locally as well. So what was your first investment? Did you buy like a a property that you house hacked yourself? Yeah. So my first property uh, was in 2016 in August. And uh, I was looking to, you know, at my day job, I was getting um, restricted stock units. And so I had some money coming my way. And I was like, well, how do I take this money and kind of start my investing career so I can start achieving financial independence? And so I was looking for anything in the area that would have the and one. And so I was able to find a a duplex just north of the airport here in uh, Seattle area. And uh, it's a duplex. There's a one bed, one bath up top, and then three bed and one and a half in the bottom. And to maximize the amount that I could house hack, I take that money to cover the mortgage. I ended up living in the one bedroom, one bath and renting out um, the bottom unit. Um, And the and one on this property was that it's on two thirds of an acre. So uh, the future game is that I'm going to tear this building down and uh, put more uh, units, uh, townhomes up on this site. Have you like, I guess, have you thought about what you're going to do and how you're going to finance this big project in the future? I haven't yet. I've been focused on a lot of low hanging fruit. So um, like I was mentioning, I got into out-of-state investing. And so these properties are basically Seattle with one less zero on it. So Instead of a million dollars, it's like a hundred thousand. So I'm only dealing with twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars a pop on those. So it's much easier to do. So instead of focusing on developing this one right now, the Seattle property, which is going to be you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, um, to do all the legwork and then actually to build it, I've just been focusing my attention uh, on lower, uh, smaller dollar amount projects. So. Um, I know that I should be pretty easy to get it done because uh, part of the project would be to upzone it. My neighbor is zoned R18 and I'm zoned R6, which that just means that 
I can do six units an acre and he can do 18. So the assumption is, is I could get, you know, what my neighbor has. And since I'm two thirds of an acre, the goal would be to put 12 units on this property once it's ready. So my goal is to build up the cash flow, um, build up the equity. Um, we're at what I think pretty high at the, you know, towards the peak of the market, wait till the next cycle and then hit that next cycle on the upswing is my game plan. That's awesome. So like why real estate in, in general, you do work at a big tech company. Why not mm-hmm. go into tech? You know, I do work at a tech company, but I am like super not tech savvy. So <laughs> I'm more of a old school kind of guy. And as I was trying to figure out, well, how do I make this money work for me that, I, that I'm getting and what's something that I can control or have more control over, you know, as I was searching on the inter- internet, everything was circling back to real estate. And so, you know, part of my job at the time I was in finance. And so in that finance role, I was analyzing um, uh, buildings and projects. And so I got some background in it to where when I started doing my own stuff, it was like second nature. It was really easy for me to analyze properties. So, um, you know, real estate was just an easy progression for me. Um, and I wanted to get into it. And, you know, to be honest, like I grew up playing Monopoly with my grandma when I was a kid. And so I've always kind of had that, like, you know, four, four, uh, greenhouses equal red hotels mindset. So I, I started out doing that. I felt the same way. Like real estate just seems like it makes sense, right? You can buy a property that cash flows from day one. There's not really much to it. It's really easy to get leverage at, you know, 80%. Um, so you just buy more properties, get more cash flow and you're good to go. And it seemed like out of all the other business ventures out there with real estate investing, a lot of people can do it without any, you know, specialty, right? Like they're not to be super smart or anything. You just go and do it. Um, is that kind of what got you into real estate investing as well? Like you felt like it was an easy way to start your own business? Totally easy way. And then plus the house hack is, you know, by, by far the easiest way. Cause it's like, one, I'm already need a place to live. And if I get this other extra unit to cover my mortgage, it's a, it's a low risk for me to get into that. Um, at, at that point in time, also like the real estate was taking off. So I'm like, I got to get in for a primary residence before like, I feel like I'm outpriced. Uh, now, when I say that, you know, fast forward five years from now and it's up like 30% or more, it's just like, man, it's just crazy how much it's gone up. So I'm glad I got in and that's just helped me um, expand into other stuff. Cause once you get the first one done, um, I think it's like Michael Block talks about the law of the first deal. After I got the house sack, every incremental one is gets easier to deal with. Yeah. And also everyone gets the bug too. You know, like before you buy your first property, there are like so many fears of the unknown. You don't know what you're doing and you're scared you're going to mess up and lose some money. But then you buy your first property and you think, oh, it wasn't that bad. You know, I'm making good money here. And so you're like, oh, you buy another one. So you buy more, you buy duplex, you buy fourplex, and then your portfolio expands exponentially. So after your first property with that duplex in you know, Seattle, what did you do next? So the next property was, um, boy, it was probably, it was May of 2017 when I bought my next one. So call it eight, nine months. And um, at the same point, I was getting more, more stocks being vested. So I had more money to spend. And I was like looking to buy other stuff in Seattle area, quickly realized that Although I had a chunk of money, it wasn't enough really to do anything in Western Washington. And so I looked in Eastern Washington. My brother lives in a, a city over there called Yakima, Washington. And I actually found a deal off a of LoopNet that was an 11 unit uh, apartment complex. So that was like my 
like true first uh, non-live-in investment property. So uh, that was a big one because like, you know, kind of the law of the first deal of, you know, outside of the house hack, I was like, well, it's my first commercial project, which I didn't even know what commercial meant at the time until I went to go get a loan. But then I just kind of learned as I was going, I had enough money to get it. And uh, it just seemed like it made total sense because like you have 11 units, although they weren't a whole lot of rent per unit, like four to five hundred dollars. Um, I think I bought that property at like two eighty five and the rents were like four thousand forty five hundred. So like, you know, going to the one percent rule, this is way above that. So just like quick, simple math. It, it seemed like a no brainer to me. All right, hold up. So your first property is a duplex where you house hacked it, but your second property is an 11 unit? Exactly, wow. yep. Wow. Like, I'm surprised you had such like courage to like go out there and offer on such a large property. Like Most people go for a single family property first, for the first out-of-state rental property. Or at least for the first rental property, it's usually a, a, single prop, a single unit or a duplex or a triplex. What made you want to go to 11 units? It literally, it wasn't that it was 11 units. What I was looking for is where could I make my money work for me and get the best cash on cash return? And what I was focusing on is like, you know, I've been at the time I was you know, like 17, 18 years into my working career. And I'm like, well, how do I get to this financial independence faster? Um, it is nice to buy in Seattle and there's appreciation, but there's no guarantee there. So I was like, I want to make my money generate cash flow so that I have an opportunity to you know, escape the rat race. And so as I was evaluating deals and I came across this one in Yakima, uh, it just so happened that it was 11 unit. I was more focused that it was cash flowing. Yeah, makes sense. Can you talk about getting a commercial loan on this, on this property? Yeah, that's actually a funny story because uh, like I said, I had no idea what commercial meant. So I went to the guy that I had been talking to about regular mortgages, uh, um, conventional mortgages. And he's like, well, I can't do this loan for you. And I'm like, why well, can't you do it? He's like, well, it's, it's a, a commercial loan. I'm like, well, what's a commercial loan? He's like, well, anything that's five units or more is considered commercial. I'm like, oh man, I didn't even know that. I was like, well, do you have a, a referral that you could send me to? And so he's friends with a guy over at US Bank. And so then that's how I got connected with US Bank. And they helped me work through that, that process. So then I quickly realized the, the, uh, terms of a uh, commercial are much different than uh, uh, residential. So uh, instead of being a 30 year fixed, it was only a five year fixed with a 25 year amortization. So, you know, with that shorter amortization, the monthly payments were higher. Um, but still, at the end of the day, it made sense that cash flowed. And I really wasn't worried about the short term nature. I was thinking that it's still going to appreciate in value. So I should be able to refi with no problems in five years. Do you know if U.S. Bank ended up holding on to that loan themselves or do they still sell it to like like Freddie Mae, Fannie Mac, whatever? So they held on to that mortgage the whole time that I held on to that property. Okay, see, that makes sense. Uh, for most commercial deals, uh, banks will probably hold on to the loans versus selling it to these larger institutions, which means that they also need to like, like you personally, right? Mm -hmm. I, I remember when I was trying to buy my first like commercial project, it was a... A beautiful like 18 unit property over in Alabama and the purchase price wasn't even that high maybe $700,000 but because I didn't live in Alabama no bank would give me that loan I know if I called maybe another hundred banks I probably would have found somebody but it is very difficult getting a commercial loan for under a million dollars if like you don't live in that state and you have no connections to those lenders 
I, uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Cause I ran into that, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, in Milwaukee, a lot of my properties were increasing in value. So I was like, well, how do I get, you know, get that trapped equity out? So I went to go refinance and, uh, this was during COVID and U S bank had really, um, uh, locked down on their lending requirements. And so I had to find another option. It actually took me 20 banks to find somebody who would lend to me. Cause if I find a bank in Washington, they're like, well, the properties are in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I don't, they didn't want to do it. Then I find somebody local and then they're like, well, you're not, you don't live in Wisconsin. So it, it took me a while to get to it. And I finally found a bank that had like a loophole that said, well, you already own properties in Wisconsin. So technically you can become a member. And so then they were able to refinance me. So I uh, ended up finding one, but it did take me literally a month to, after calling all the people, then following back up with them and then aligning on somebody who would actually uh, give me the loan. Yeah, it's really strange how like all these you know commercial lending requirements are so different from the residential side. Like one of the big pieces too is like they want you to have a net worth that's greater than or equal to your loan balance. So mm-hmm. if you don't have you know the net worth for this commercial property, then you can't get a loan for the commercial property. But the whole reason why you're getting a loan is because you don't have the net worth sometimes, right? Exactly. It's like chicken and an egg. So then it forces you to like you got to stack cash for a while or hope your every your portfolio appreciates. Exactly. So after you bought that 11 unit property, when did you start to go into your other markets like Milwaukee or Detroit? So then I, uh, right after that, um, I was listening to bigger pockets. I had more restricted stocks coming my way. So I had more cash flow coming to me. And I heard this guy, I don't, I don't know who the guy was. I'd have to go back, but it was, um, early on in the bigger pockets. I'm assuming, you know, the early, the first 50 or so, it was a young guy out of Southern California talking about investing in Milwaukee. And I heard about the prices that he was talking about. And I was like, this can't be true. And then, uh, so I got, it sparked my interest and I was just so happening to go on to a golf tournament in the Madison area. And normally I fly into Chicago. I was like, well, I'm going to change my flight plans. I'm going to fly into Milwaukee, check out this real estate and see if it's really that cheap. And so I was able to meet up with an agent in the area and I was like, oh my God, it is it is that cheap and it's cheaper than I actually inspected. So like I had purchased my duplex for 535,000 in 2016, 2017, I bought a duplex for 65,000. So it's like what I like to say, it's like, you know, Seattle with one less zero on the end. And uh, still today it kind of holds true. So uh, way cheaper to get involved. Uh, but that first one that I bought was in um, October of twenty. 17. And then I quickly bought another one in December of 2018. And then 2019, that's when I really started on a tear, started acquiring more and more. So for your duplex that you bought for $65,000, how much do they rent for? Uh, On that one, it was, uh, I think it was like 700, 750 per unit. So 1400. So yeah, over 2% if you're, uh, uh, so like, you don't even really need to do the math. Like it, it just, you know, it pencils. The question is, is how much deferred maintenance is there? Uh, obviously these buildings are older. And so, uh, I think my, probably my average age of the building has got to be close to a hundred years old. You know, these are all turn of the century type buildings. So when I'm purchasing them, although it is cheap, you want to make sure that there's not too much, uh, deferred maintenance. Like what I end up doing is I know the tenants are going to turn over over time. I spend, 
two to 5,000 each time they turn over. And I kind of gradually uh, improve them as I go versus throwing a large chunk of money into them at the beginning. Got it. So like every time they turn around, you like fix one part of the house and you make it nicer and update it. And then when they move in, you update another part of the house. Exactly. I focus on the internal at first just to get it cash flowing. Um, you know, knock on one. I've been pretty lucky. I haven't had to, any major roof stuff. Um, you know, I've been doing some exterior stuff, but majority of the exterior, I've been pretty lucky so far. Okay. And how are you financing these duplexes if they're so low? You know, 65000 that means the loan amount's, you know, going to be fifty or something. Um, who's out there giving you loans for $50,000? Exactly. So, um, you know, I was a creature of habit. I, I just got a loan for from U.S. Bank. And so I'm like, oh, well, they gave me my last loan. I'll talk to them again. Uh, it's not a commercial property, but um, they ended up doing a commercial loan on that, which just makes it much easier. And so I, I went with them to do the property. And um, actually, that was my second one in Milwaukee. The first one in Milwaukee, I went to I went went back to my Seattle guy he, and did a loan with him. And uh, you had brought up the $50,000. And that was actually one of the main issues is that, you know, because the purchase price is so low, a lot of these banks don't want to do a, a loan for that amount. And what ended up happening is like, when I was negotiating the price of the property, um, I literally couldn't go lower on the purchase price because the loan would actually be considered predatory because like the fee structure was so, uh, a high percentage relative to the loan amount. So like I went back to the the broker and we had like, we had to pregame it. So I was like, what's my backstop? So I knew exactly what I had to negotiate to and so that I could still get the loan. I totally know what you mean. Like, so my girlfriend and I have been buying properties in South Georgia and one of the properties she bought was for like $40,000. And for whatever reason, she decided to get a loan on it, even though we could totally do it with cash. And just like you mentioned, adding on the, you know, the processing fees, uh, appraisal fees, all this stuff. Um, our, I think her closing fees were $10,000 total for Holy a loan smell. that was 40. You know what I mean? Like, it was like, why bother getting the loan? So then going forward, there was no point in getting a loan on these like super, super cheap properties. We just paid on cash and then worry about it in the future. Yeah. Oh man, that's crazy. Yeah. It's okay. Lessons learned, right? Lessons learned. There's, so, um, there's actually, um, when I run into scenarios like that, uh, you know, at work, I talk with other people who invest in some smaller markets and they, they just pick up the phone. They, like we were talking about earlier, they just call all the local banks. Um, I, uh, there's a guy that I know that just, He's able to get loans as low as like $25,000, but it's, it's like the local community bank when that's probably one of the only one or two in town. And so he's able to, through relationships, get that done. But uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy that uh, sometimes the cost structure gets out of whack on these small loan amounts. Well, it's because like there's a lot of fixed amounts, right? Like imagine processing fees in the $1,500 to $2,000 price point. Appraisal is always going to run you like 700 bucks or so. Tile and escrow, another 2000 So I mean, as up, and these are fixed costs, whether they be hundred thousand or a million dollars. So right. that's why it's so bad. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about what you did afterwards after buying your other duplexes. Yeah. So after the those duplexes, then I just was like, okay, this this model is working. I like that it's small dollar amounts, and then literally I can just go on MLS and I can just cherry pick these deals at any point in time. So I just was ramping up all of 2019. I was just buying more and more, uh, or no, 2018, I was buying more and more all off MLS 
through through different agents. And um, and then when I started getting, um, you know, you know, at some point in time, you're going to run out of cash. Then I ended up selling my um, my original that 11 unit that I'd bought. And then I 1031 that um, I think that was in 2019 when I did that. And so what I was realizing is that um, the cash flow in Milwaukee was so much higher than what it was in, in Yakima. And in, and my thoughts in Yakima, I was like, gosh, there's no way that this is going to continue to appreciate. And so I was like, well, let me just re- repurpose my funds. And so that's what I did. I, I sold the 11 unit and I bought, what was it, uh, five duplexes and one triplex with the same amount of money. So zero out of pocket. I, I rolled all the funds into um, into those new properties. Did you have to get another commercial loan to fund the rest of it? Or did your equity position in that 11 unit pay for everything there? So I ended up doing new loans for all those properties. And, uh, you know, the, what ended up happening is if you're familiar with 1031, you, you know, obviously you can't take the money. Otherwise you got to pay the tax. So on the last property that I bought, it was something like a 50% LTV. So I, I just took the rest of the money and dumped it onto that last property. But all those loans, I ended up more, uh, commercial loans, us bank. Can you talk about that commercial loan structure with us bank? Like what are the terms and stuff like that? So at that point in time, all the all the loans were five year fixed, twenty five year amortization. Um, they have a pretty sweet deal. The the if you uh, refi or sell the property, I think it was only like two hundred fifty dollars to if you um, got out of the loan early. Uh, and then general at that point in time, most of my loans were in the five percent range. So twenty seventeen, it was a little bit over five, and then it went to five. And then coming, you know, 2019, I want to say it was like four and a half. So uh, what happens after the five-year fix? Does it automatically become like a, a adjustable rate mortgage or do you have to, you know, refinance again after year five? You have to refinance at the five. So technically it's a balloon payment if you went to term. So what you do is you just refinance it in advance. Um, at first I was like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But when I started buying when I did that 1031, so I got those six properties, you know, imagine all these loans coming due at the same time. It started kind of getting me nervous, but what's been happening is that the properties end up appreciating and then I refinance and pull the money out. So like that five year, even though it seems short, every time I refi or sell, like, you know, I'm pushing out that timeline. Yeah. I have a similar product as you with a local bank, again, in the uh, South Georgia. And at first they were, trying to give me that, you know, five year and 25 M, which means that you're supposed to be paying on a 25 year schedule. Like if you just paid it off, then over 25 years, you would pay it off. But mm-hmm. every five years you have a balloon payment and I wasn't comfortable with it because it's, right. it's scary. Just like you said, in five years, I don't know what my financial position might be like. What if, what if something happened and my credit score took a big hit and they wouldn't refinance me? Then, right. then what? I lose the property too. Um, so, I mean, I, I negotiated personally to, to make it like think, uh, a five five. So every five years they readjust the rates on us. And then uh, but I think for that bank also it's a twenty year AM, so not twenty five years. So that's why it's not as good either. Right. Yeah. On some of the I as I was going along, there was a few times where I went to another local bank. because um, I you know, because of that five year um fixed component. So I was trying to push them to ten, they wouldn't do ten. So I, I went to another bank that was able to give me ten year fixed. Um 
the pro was, yeah, it was 10 year fixed. The cons was the ease of doing it was much more difficult. U uh, S bank. I would meet the guy in the branch. I could walk to it, you know, a uh, couple signatures. I'm done. Uh, when I was doing these with this other bank, you know, I'd have to schedule a notary and, um, tons of paperwork to sign a lot more requirements, um, uh, to do those. So even though there's a couple loans that I did at 10%, I ended up then pivoting back to us bank just for ease of use. Yeah. I'm surprised that us bank has something like this because they're like a nationwide lender, you know, they're, they're big, they're institutional funds. Uh, right. like how would someone know if they're qualified for a commercial loan with a bank like us bank? So the, what, what ended up happening with me, there was like the, original um that's what you call him uh the main contact he's more like the sales guy to build the relationship and then once i got in then there was like a wealth management group and so then they analyze your total portfolio all your assets all your cash what your income is and then they get they get more and more comfortable with you because they can see what kind of risk factor you are so as i was starting out i had a lot of cash not very many properties. So not, not really any debt. Um, you know, fast forward to, you know, in 2020, it was kind of a double, double whammy. I had, um, gone up to in the tune of 20 to 20, some early low twenties of properties very quickly at the same time COVID hit. So then they, they were like, Hey, like you've grown really far, really fast. And, uh, we basically, we're going to approve this last loan for you, but you know, you need to take a break. So um, then I had to, that's, I had to start finding a new uh, uh, bank to go with because basically uh, U.S. bank was like, you can apply, but uh, the odds of it happening are low unless you're going to bring down, you know, 50% down or a huge down payment. And I'm like, ah, I I'm not going to want to do that. So I had to start finding another bank to work with. Makes sense. What did your 11 unit end up selling for? So the 11 unit uh, was 365. So I made, I think it was 80,000 in roughly 14 months off of that. Wow. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Yeah. And all you have to do is hold it too. I know. And I was like, God, there's no way this is going to go up anymore. That thing has doubled in price since I sold it. And that was not even two years ago. So it's like, it's crazy how, how much it's gone up. Now, let me ask you another question. This is like not really real estate related, but you do work for a large tech company. You're mm -hmm. talking about RSUs. That company has gone up in price. You know, right. It's doubled in price as well. What are your feelings with like, you know, investing in stocks, crypto and real estate? Like, why are you investing in real estate when stocks do really well as well? At the end of the day, like a lot of these um, tech companies and a lot of the stocks, they don't actually pay dividends. So like, yeah, it looks great on paper, but you can't eat that, right? So that's why I've been pivoting into real estate. It's fairly consistent once you get into your niche and understand it and execute on it. I can more like back to the beginning. Like, I'm I like control. I'm, I can't really control if I'm in the right stock or the wrong stock. And so I've literally am in zero stocks except for the stock that I get from my company. So I've I've even turned my the retirement that I had prior to the current employer, I have uh, moved it into what's called a, a solo 401k. And I own three properties outright in that so that that's generating cash flow in my in my retirement. Yeah, it's like with real estate, it's 
replicable success. You can keep doing the same strategy and keep making more money. But like you said, yeah, your company's going to be well today with stocks. But you don't know if it's going to double in price again in the future. So you can't replicate that that boom. And and like you said too, like you can't eat equity, right? Or you can't eat this growth in the market. Like if I had ten Bitcoin and I was sitting on three hundred thousand or six hundred thousand dollars, it's not like I'm going to sell that Bitcoin, right? If I sell it, then it's gone, so I have to keep it. But then, then if I don't sell it, then I can't use it. So it's like a paradox there, right? Yeah, it's totally the you kill the golden goose. You know, you sell the stock, your goose is not producing any more golden eggs, right? And so the same thing is with crypto, and so with real estate. For me, because you know, it, uh, I'm trying to focus on uh, high value activities. I can do one property, set it, forget it. You know, I got my accountants doing the, that paperwork. I've got the realtor does uh, his part. The property manager does their part. It's fairly low touch once I buy it, and so it's like uh, kind of set it and forget it and let it roll. The the one thing I will say that I learned now. Um, Obviously, I didn't think it was going to go up as much as it did. I got, I got very lucky. Uh, the one thing that I didn't know until about four years into the game was that uh, you don't actually have to sell it. Like You can put it into a margin account and you can borrow it against it. And so the last like uh, year, year and a half, I haven't been selling. You know, As I was getting it, I would sell it and buy properties to, to one, grow the portfolio, two, to diversify. Um, but now what I do is I just hold hold the stock, borrow against it, buy the property, let it cash flow, pay back the the loan on the stock, and then once that's paid off, then I can pull, pull it out. So it's kind of almost like a HELOC in a way. So for those of our listeners who don't know what a margin account is, do you mind explaining how the whole process works? Yeah, so a margin account just lets you borrow against the equity that's in your account. And so I think the setup on the company that I'm at with, so say if I had $100,000, I think they let me go up to 80% of the value. So um, if it's worth $100,000, I could pull out $80,000 worth, go um, apply that to some other asset. Uh, the good news is, is if, if that stock value goes up to $120,000, you know, obviously you've increased that value. Theoretically, you could borrow more. Uh, the thing that you have to be very cognizant of is it can go the other way. So if it's at worth a hundred thousand and then say it drops to 80,000, you get what's called a margin call because you got to keep that 80% loan to value there. So in that scenario, I'd have to come out of pocket, I think what, $16,000 um, to bring it back up to the minimum threshold. So uh, it's, you definitely got to watch where if, if you're doing the margin, make sure that you're able to kind of fund that back because there's you're, you've definitely got exposure there. Yeah. And so after doing this several times in Milwaukee, uh, eventually you end up going to Detroit. So mm-hmm. do you want to talk about that transition and how you picked Detroit? So Detroit was where um, on bigger pockets, they, uh, this is back when uh, Josh Dorkin was still consistently on there. And they would always bring up Detroit and they'd always dog on Detroit saying that, oh my God, it's never gone up. It's been depressed forever. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to go check it out. Let's see what it looks like. At the same point in time, I started just thinking like at a macro level, I was probably over 10 properties by the time in Milwaukee. So I was like, well, maybe I should look at, you know, diversifying a little bit. Let's see what another market would look like. Is it better? Is it worse? And so after I uh, visited there, I was like, okay, let's, let's test it out. 
it's roughly the same amount of price as what you're getting or what I was getting in Milwaukee. Uh, and so I, I ended up jumping in. Um, but that was after vetting out and planning out how I was going to do it. Uh, the key there is, in Milwaukee, when I got in, I just kind of figured it out as I was going. With Detroit, what I ended up doing is I was on bigger pockets. I was talking to different people in the area. So when I flew into town, I met with um, real estate agents, property managers, um, and got to know them, what their opinions were. And by the time I left town, I was able to, uh, I picked a guy who's kind of all in one, real estate agent and property manager. You know, it was great, um, easy for me to work with him uh, relative to the other people I talked to. Yeah. And so with that guidance and that boots to the ground team, you were able to properly identify where to invest and where to stay away from. Exactly. So like I started looking at stuff and, you know, obviously when you think about Detroit, there are these cheap properties that you all hear about. Um, actually, the three properties I own are not even in Detroit. I buy on the periphery of Detroit um, because a lot of it is like, yeah, you can make the cash flow. It all comes down to whether you're a collect the check. And so because I have that, um, uh, my main guy there is like, whatever he says, go. So I used to send him like properties that'd be in Detroit and he's like, not going to manage it. So I'm like, okay, not going to put an offer in. So then that naturally progressed me into the periphery. So I own properties like in Warren and East, uh, East Point and Inkster are the, the three, but I run everything by him first. Like, Hey, if I put an offer in, would you manage it? If he says yes, then I give him what my offer is and then he submits it. Yeah, that's really smart. And you know, we do run a course as well. Where we teach people how to buy out of state rental properties. And we always tell them like the most important thing is to find that boots in the ground team, especially that property manager, because they're going to be the ones who are with you for, you know, a decade, maybe two, um, managing your properties. And it's a good resource because then you can start bouncing off these offers. Like, Hey, if I have a property here, will you even manage it? Mm -hmm. uh, my girlfriend, Sharon, she has two different property managers because one manager won't manage a property she has, you know, it's like fourplex it's in a weirder area. They're like, now nah, we don't want to touch it. So that's definitely something that you need to have on your team. Exactly. I, you just, uh, you know, sparked a, a thought for me because I, I was in that same spot that uh, Sharon was in where, um, when in Milwaukee, like I started with uh, my main property manager. And then as I was acquiring these properties, I was like, my property manager was okay, but it wasn't like, oh my, they're amazing. So then I would, as I was buying properties, I would like actually keep that property manager. And it totally ballooned on me. I ended up with like five property managers. And then I was like, oh my God, these are like three different systems, five different property managers, different cost structures. It was just bananas. So then I, um, last year I consolidated, I found the one that I really like, which is actually the same as what I got in Detroit. They're a real estate company that does a, that have an agency and they do property management. So it's a one-stop shop that I can go with. And my life has been like way, way easier. So uh, I guess, where are you now and what are you trying to do going forward? So right now, um, I'm at 29 properties, 63 doors. I've got, uh, I'm closing potentially next week or the week after on a, on another property. Actually, it's back in Yakima. Um, it's a sixplex where it's going to be a, it's actually going to be a subject to Burr property. Uh, so it's going to be my first subject to, and it's going to be my, uh, 
first Washington burr pro project. So I'm pretty pumped about this. Uh, just working through the final um, title company stuff to get a uh, closing set up. How would you say you scaled so quickly? Like what is like the, the biggest factor that you had over other people? There's a couple factors. Uh, the first one is that I'm like all in. So the at, at the end of the day, to scale, you you have to have money. So like one, I had uh, the, w, the W2 and the, the restriction stocks coming my way. Two, I had bought properties that appreciate. So I was able to pull money out of there. And then three, I had converted my retirement fund into a solo 401k. So then I could buy properties out of there. So those are, that's what funded all the stuff. Um, even with all that, it got to, when I got to maybe um, 20, prop, 19 or 20, I, I still ran out of money. And so then, um, you know, I talked to everybody about real estate. And so as I'm talking to people, they're like, hey, I'd love to do a deal. Like if you want to partner up, let's do it. So then I did a few partnerships um, and that helped me acquire, let's see, I have, I think, six properties within partnerships. So I would say, you know, access to cash and then connections for partnerships is like the two like key things. Um, the thing that I'm really missing that I'm working on is access to more private money. That's like the, in hindsight, first I would have borrowed against my Amazon or my stock and not sold it. Second of all, I would have really focused on um, building a, a presence, you know, getting my message out more to get private money to help fund more deals. Uh, that'd help me grow even faster. And that's what, what I'm going to use to grow, you know, from here forward is this private money route so that I'm not limited to my personal economy. I'm limited to what the, the funds that I can get from uh, other personal investors. So I guess it's a good transition to this next question. Like, what are your thoughts on borrowing money or I guess partnering with people for these like buy and hold projects. I've partnered people in the past for fix and flip projects. And for me, that's okay because it's a relatively short term relationship, maybe one year or two years at best. But for a rental property, that's like 10, 20, 30 years, potentially. Um, you know, like, and I feel like people's motivations may change. I, right. I, again, if it's like your friend or your family member, yeah, sure. Maybe like, you guys know each other really well and, you could probably have the same goals, but uh, like a partnership with like some some stranger, maybe someone you met through social media. To me, that sounds super scary. I know that for us, we could scale way bigger if we just accepted money from all of like you know Sharon's fans and whatever. But right. I, I don't know. I don't feel comfortable doing that. Um, how did you kind of get over that hurdle to accept private money for your rental properties? So there's um, the probably the biggest thing for me was that like you, there's a saying about burning the boats, like. I'm all in about going to get financial independence. And so like I'll take small bets knowing that it may blow up. So like I did a bunch of these all within a short amount of time. Since then I realized it's a lot of work because like um, I'm doing the lending we're doing for most of them, doing the bookkeeping, uh, working with the property managers, acquiring the properties, running the financials. So uh, I quickly realized equity partners is not the way to go. Um, I'm going to honor these commitments. I'm going to stay in it as long as it makes sense. Uh, so I'm now switching to where uh, I'm definitely going to do more partnerships, but it's going to be the debt side. Generally speaking, it'll be short term. Like uh, I'm trying to get into more burr type projects. So short term, use the cash, fix it up. Once I get the long term, take out money, then uh, 
then that, that partnership would end. So, um, because I'm willing to take risks, that's what got me into it. But I've since realized equity partners is, I, I more prefer debt partners than equity partners right now. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense. Have you, fe- have you like encountered any challenges with doing the birth strategy? So the birth strategy, it, uh, I mean, it's capital intensive right now. So like uh, I have a burr project where I'm finishing the last R. So I'm in process of refinancing and uh, it's a property in Milwaukee and it was, I've got like about 120 K of my liquidity kind of tied up into this. So like uh, it all is a function of uh, the appraisal value and how much you get back out of it on paper. It can be super great. You can, in theory, get all your money back. But if you don't, then, uh, you know, you're, you can trap uh, more money than you want into that project. But, uh, you know, the, I've been lucky. I believe the market is going to increase in value such that I'm going to be able to get a good chunk of it out. And I'm actually a little concerned. So instead of waiting the six month seasoning, um, I'm able to work with the bank and be like, Hey, I'll just, can you give me 90% loan to cost to get my money right now? So I'm trying to get my money out in three months versus waiting the six months, uh, you know, because like I don't know how long this uh, gravy train is going to last of uh, the rising economy. So I'd rather take a sure thing right now uh, so, so that I have a little bit more liquidity if there was a downturn. How much is that uh, property worth that you put $120,000 into? I think it's going to be one forty, one fifty. Yeah, so should be right about that 80% uh, LTV right value. Okay, so the banks are going to lend you 80% for cash out refi and at three months? The three months, if I do that, it'll be 90. The goal is to get 90% loan to cost. Oh, God, so 90% of 120. Yeah. Got it. So, I mean, I, I'd rather like keep in, uh, get guaranteed out right now. I'm just a little concerned because like, that was majority of my dry powder. Uh, like I said, I'm trying not to cash out the stock and I've already borrowed against some of it. So like uh, I'm pretty levered right now. So I'd rather just get what I can now, get a little bit firm base going into the back end of this year. Makes sense. And what kind of rates do you get for a cash out of this size? You know, it's crazy how cheap it is. I'll probably get three and a half uh, on that. I'm surprised three and a half percent. Yeah. So the wow. last cash out refis I did now, this was in November of 2020, but I was at three and a half percent. So maybe three and a half, maybe 4%. So it's not, it's not crazy. Is that because it's like a commercial loan again? This is from the same, same lender. It's the same lender. Yep. It's the same yeah, I mean, other- local credit union that I've been working with. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess they're a little bit more flexible on their terms and their rates because they hold on to their loans. Um, because, you know, as a quick plug, you know, I told you before that I work as a hard money lender. And so we actually do have a lot of clients who are doing something similar where they buy properties with cash or with private money funds. And then in three months, they do a cash out refinance. So we can actually give them up to 100% of their hard costs at month three. But we're definitely not going to be in that 3.5% range, especially doing cash out refinance at the max leverage. Right. Um, honestly, it'll probably be more like in the 4.5 or 5% range on our side, plus origination fees. So you guys definitely get a great deal with this one. Yeah, that's still a good deal, though, four and a half. Uh, I mean, geez, <laughs> maybe I should be talking to you about doing a loan on that one. Yeah, maybe in the future. 
I mean, I know that we for sure can't do 80% of leverage. You know, like mm-hmm. that's what you guys are at. We can do uh, 70% of that 140 number and then mm-hmm. up to 100% of your hard costs, whichever one is lower. Got it. But yeah, combo for a different day. But yeah, I mean, that's exciting. So w- I guess, what is your like your end goal? I think you mentioned that you are trying to leave your full-time W2 at some point. Um, right. Do you have like a target goal in mind to uh, before you're willing to leave? Yeah, my goal is 2023. So, you know, less than two years away. Uh, my aggressive goal is January 2023. And what I want is like, I heard this term on Instagram the other day. So instead of the normal FIRE for FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, I'm looking for FIOR, so Financial Independence Optional Retirement. So I want to be able to pull the ripcord whenever. So that if I can hit that uh, Financial Independence Optional Retirement sometime in 2023, that's perfect. I may choose to stay longer, but I, don't, I want to know that if I want to, I can pull the trigger, go full-time, just manage my portfolio. Uh, so I'm still you know, aggressively trying to acquire, as you can tell, I'm putting all my chips in, I'm fairly levered. And so I'm living on the edge to push to get to that date. Do you have like a, I guess a monthly passive income goal that you're trying to hit? Uh, I mean, obviously the, you know, everyone says 10,000, but uh, 10,000 is not going to cut it. So like, uh, you know, I've been debating this with my girlfriend. I was like, well, 10,000 is like a pretty good proof of concept in its runway that, you know, if I go full time, I should be able to get more like active income, whether it's wholesaling or something like that. And uh, she's pushing me to get wait till 30,000. I'm like, I don't know if I can even manage both. Uh, so it's probably going to be somewhere in the middle, uh, call it 15 or 20,000. I don't know what the number is. Um, now, the the issue that I run into and you're back on the partnerships is like all the partnerships I'm in, we're not really about distributions. We're about accumulation. So although I have these properties in these partnerships, the money just stacks. And then we then when it gets up, then we can buy another property. So it's not like I'm getting cash flow per se. Um, and then those properties that I own in my retirement, those I own outright. So like there's high cash flow, but that's cash flow when I'm, you know, 60, whatever. So like there's a good chunk of the cash flow that I'm getting that it's not tangible. So um it's going to make me, you know, be more aggressive, get more properties to build that, the true uh, passive income that I can cash in hand right now. Yeah, tell me about it. As a real estate investor, I feel equity rich and cash poor all the time because whenever I have a good chunk of money, we go out and buy another property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I, I did really well last month with a lot of loans. We did a lot of hard money loans, a lot of long term rental loans, uh, and then we bought a property. You know, we right. went on and bought another duplex. We're in a contract for another property that we might put in maybe like 75000 into to, to renovate it. Mm-hmm. So there goes all the cash. And so, you know, I, I don't live a fancy lifestyle. I drive a Corolla, whatever. At first, my goal was the same. Like, I'm going to get $10,000 a month. I was like, wow, with 10000 a month, I can leave my job as an engineer. Well, right. I only had like maybe $2,500 a month in net, like net 2500 And I left my job as an engineer because I didn't need the money. I was able to do other things to make more income. Right. I feel like you're going to be the same way, right? You're going to hit a $10,000 mark and you'll be like, it's not enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's like, I mean, I actually really like what I'm doing. It, uh, it dovetails into what I'm doing today. So like, it is fun. That's, that's why I want that financial independence optional retirement. If it becomes not fun, that I can just leave, you know? So it's, um, 
it wasn't always that way. And so uh, it used to be kind of a grind. And so, which is really what got me into the game. But once you align with the right role that meets your your background and what you're good at, it's actually been pretty fun. Um, yep. But I'm I'm happy for you, man. Because some I've been having this discussion lately with myself. I was like, could I actually make more money with what I know now if I went full time? Because like, you know, like I'm trying to find deals, like uh, driving for dollars, cold calling. Uh, and it's a function of time. So if I'm only doing it intermittently, then I'm only getting intermittently deals. And so like what ends up happening is I have this like pendulum where I've got free time. I'll end up, you know, being very aggressive on uh, deal generation and finding leads. And then I do deals. Then my work, something will happen. I've got to, you know, bear down on that. My leads dry up. And so then it just kind of goes back and forth. And so obviously it's not consistent. And so, you know, if I was to go full time, you know, I haven't, you know, the sky is probably the limit. It's just that I haven't been able to pull the trigger. I'm interested to understand like what, so 2,500, you ended up leaving. What, what gave you the comfort factor to, to jump when you know that that wasn't, you were obviously making way more than that per month uh, in your, in your W2. Yeah. Um, honestly, again, like you mentioned, it's a function of the role wasn't right for me. Um, I was good at the job. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I actually, I automated my job maybe within like three months of being there. So I was super efficient at everything I did. And my role was really to just warm my chair every day. I sat there from nine to five, warming my chair and then went home, but it didn't feel good, right? Like uh, working there didn't make me feel like I'm really contributing to society. I felt like my talents weren't you know, fully expressed. And plus anything I learned and anything I did there wouldn't translate to anything else in the real world. You know, I'm not learning sales. I'm not learning how to analyze real estate deals. I'm just learning how to become a better engineer on how to analyze satellite data. That does not really apply unless I want to work at another satellite company, which I didn't really care for. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I thought I would be done with W2 forever, but then I got brought in as a hard money lender. For me, this makes total sense. I have a podcast, meetup group, YouTube channel. I was doing all of these things for free anyway, just because I love talking to real estate investors. But now there's a component to it where I can actually make some income because everyone needs a loan, right? right. The products that we sell are things that I used before myself because this company that I worked for or this company that I worked with was so great versus all the other hardware lenders out there. Mm-hmm. So when they invited me on, I was super honored. I was like, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think it's just a really good fit because now my full-time job is to talk to investors like yourself, is to see cool deals and, you know, I get to see the market and all that stuff. So it's been a really good fit. And I think that's what makes the biggest difference um, for, for these roles. Yeah, that's amazing. Because you're, even the properties that you're helping your clients on, obviously you're not getting them, but you're seeing what's transaction. So like, what's the price that they're buying at? What's the rehab? What what they're selling at? So if you're in that specific area, it definitely helps you uh, understand the total market. Yes. And of course, being a lender myself, I now have like insider knowledge on the lending industry. So mm-hmm. when I get loans, you know, I know like what levers to push, right? And all that right. kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's been helpful. And I feel obviously like talking on the phone all day with investors has made me better on the phone, which is also a cool skill to have. And uh, again, going to meetup groups. Now I have a reason to go to meetups and drive all the way to San Francisco. Whereas before I'd be lazy sometimes. Now it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I can go for fun, meet people. And of course, get, potentially get some business out of it too. Nice. Yeah. Just totally you got leverage there now, especially your your podcast, your YouTube channel, all that is like 
additive and you can re uh you know people like i went back and i was looking listening to your old podcast so like that content is just a bank that you can uh, keep making money off of in the future yeah i mean honestly i don't make too much money from like the show itself the sh- this show right here is like the number one benefit is that i get free one hour sessions with an investor like yourself mm-hmm. i i didn't know about these commercial loans from us bank that's amazing right i can use that for my own Great. business I've learned so many different key nuggets from different um, investors who have been on my show over the past two and a half years. That's mm-hmm. like the number one key thing here. And then, of course, you can take that knowledge in and share it with the world. So, yeah, like, yeah, you're right. It's like a bank, but also it gives me a platform where I can bring guests like yourself to learn for my own business sake. Exactly. Yeah, I thought about doing it as well as like, um, you know, especially as you're starting out, like because um, there's a lot of people that want to meet people and um project what they've got going on, whether it's a book or investments or whatever. So like, you know, if you have a platform, it's a lot easier to get somebody to talk to you. So uh, yeah, the, yes. the, con- the content that you've had is just, I'm sure is amazing. I mean, think about this. When I was first getting started with real estate investing, it was really hard for me to go to meetup groups and ask the speaker to like spend some time with me. You know, they'll get sworn by 30 or 40 people. And if you ask them to go to lunch, they'd be like, yeah, like, I'm kind of busy. I don't know if I want to spend an hour of lunch with you. You don't have much to give me. Whereas now I can say, hey, do you want to be on my podcast? I have several hundred listeners who listen to every episode. You can, you know, I know you're talking to a group of, what, 50 people here. Why not go on my platform and speak to hundreds of people? And so they're more willing to do it. Uh, yeah, so it's been amazing in that front. That's awesome. Well, Justin, you know, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show to talk to us about how to scale your rental portfolio in a relatively short time frame, And you know the concept of going to banks to get commercial loans for your rental properties. How can people find out more about you? Yeah, so the main um, way to connect to me is on Instagram. It's under JC Cambra. So C-A-M-B-R-A is the last name there. Um, I'm also on Facebook under Justin Cambra or LinkedIn under Justin Cambra. Uh, I'd love listening, talking, and learning uh, from others. So if you're new or experienced, I'd love to talk to you. Um, feel free to reach out to me at any point in time. And uh, I don't know, I can put my phone number on here if you want to reach out via phone call or text. 425-387-3975. Love to hear about what you got going on. Awesome. Well, Justin, thank you again so much for being on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure having you on. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Sean. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.